This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and here is a metaphor. Denver in 2019 is a lot like a teenager who's just entering puberty. That is Andrew Kenny of the Denver Post. He's covering the most crowded race in decades for Denver mayor. Incumbent Michael Hancock faces nine challengers. In the last cycle, he faced just three and won handily. This year, Kenny says candidates are focused on Denver's growing pains. It's getting taller and taller, and it's entering this new phase of growth that's causing all kinds of interesting emotions like confusion and anger and angst. And most importantly, like a teenager, it doesn't know what it's going to look like in four or five years. Andy, in a recent story you wrote, Mayor Michael Hancock sat and listened for 45 minutes on a recent Saturday morning as people explained why he should lose his job. This was at a candidate forum. What was the primary reason his opponents gave? Well, each one of his main opponents has a different platform, but they have focused on a central theme of development and growth. The idea that we're going to hand some control over the city's changes back to residents and back to voters. From? From developers. From developers. It's a big question to ask you. Is that a fair assessment? Is that a fair criticism of the Hancock administration? Well, it depends on who you ask. What I can say is that we are seeing Michael Hancock this year dealing with the repercussions and in some ways the tail end of a growth boom. Denver has been trying for decades to have this happen. Finally did. We're like the dog that caught the car and now we have to figure out what to do with it. You note some of the trends in growth, though, are slowing a bit. So we have added 100,000 residents in less than a decade, and that's to Denver city and county alone. 100,000 in less than a decade. Okay. And on top of that, the spike in apartment rents, they have nearly doubled since the recession. But that spike is starting to slow down a little bit now. Okay. So that's the backdrop here. Is the real concern like what the city will look like 20 years from now? How much of the candidates' focus is on this moment and on, you know, decades from now? I would say that they seem to agree on the broad strokes of the future, which is that Denver needs to solve its transit and transportation problems and that development mostly should be focused around our rail lines and our transit stops. But they are arguing in a big way right now about how to handle the wave of development and whether or not Hancock has done a good job of integrating this new growth with the city. To what extent do you think Denver's race is, I don't know, like a sentinel for the rest of the state? If I were an elected leader in Aurora or in Colorado Springs, I would be paying close attention to Denver right now because Denver is entering this new phase that I would argue other cities in Colorado haven't experienced yet. We're kind of the guinea pig here. As we said, Mayor Hancock faces this historic number of challengers. And recently at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Hancock told CPR that the timing of their campaigns is telling. They didn't run when we were in the recession, you know. When things are going well, people want to do your job. They want to, they want to do the things we're doing. But here's the reality. To change administrations right now will take them another four years just to get ramped up at a time when this city has a great deal of momentum going forward and simply cannot afford to start over with new people who don't know the landscape. And they may pretend and they may stand up and say, I know this city, I know how to run this city. But at the end of the day, once you get in there, I was president of council. There was a lot of things I didn't know what it took to be mayor of this city. You have no clue um, until you get in there and it's kind of like, wow. I mean, taken to an extreme, I suppose that means there should never be a new mayor. But he makes a point that I've heard before from Colorado's former governor, John Hickenlooper, actually a former mayor himself of Denver, 
that growth and housing costs are tough, but they're also a sign of success, right? They're the opposite of a recession. What do you think is bringing out so many candidates? I could identify a few trends. First of all, Mayor Hancock had his text messaging scandal that emerged last year when it came out that he had exchanged sexually explicit text messages with a city employee, a police officer, back in 2012. I think that opened the door. For which he apologized. He did apologize. Yeah, and and has acknowledged. Mm -hmm. Second, there is, of course, the blue wave that drove so many candidates into the state legislature and into federal politics. Denver is a very democratic city, even though the elections are nonpartisan. So I think that perhaps there's a bit of excitement in the air. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the crowded Denver mayor's race with Andrew Kenny of the Denver Post, who's covering uh, the campaigns. Andrew, in, in your most recent article, it just occurred to me that one theme was that people don't like how the development looks. Like they just think it's ugly. <laughs> and I wonder to what extent the current administration might simply be suffering from the aesthetic choices in some of this development. Yeah, that is a really interesting question because if you look at Northwest Denver, which I would argue has the most intense aesthetic concerns, it is the home of the slot home, if you remember those. Yeah, so slot homes are a way of maximizing a little bit of land and putting a ton of, of housing there, but they don't really engage with the street very well. Yeah, they have this big urban canyon between the buildings. And those started to spread first in Northwest Denver. And interestingly, Northwest Denver was one of the first areas that we saw the development backlash really start to manifest in local politics. It helped Councilman Rafael Espinoza to win office in 2015 in an upset over the incumbent Susan Shepard. He won 70 percent of the vote that year. Huh. Now, this word development, you know, in some circles is a dirty word, but it also reflects more Housing construction, which, you know, some say is desperately needed, uh, especially if that construction is affordable. So is this an entirely anti-development election? No, it's not. We are starting to even see a pro-development movement. We haven't seen it catch on on a citywide level yet. It's not a priority. It's not the first thing that your mayoral candidates talk about. But we do have some council-level candidates who I would say are development-forward or development-first I'm reminded of Praj Kulkarni is a candidate in Northwest Denver. He opens his stump speech by saying, I just came from San Francisco. You don't want to be like San Francisco. And if you want to avoid that, we need to keep building housing. This has been called uh, the Yimby movement. That's right. The Explain that. Yes in my backyard movement. Yes in my backyard. That and is, what? I'm happy to have mixed income developments across the street. That's right. And what those folks are, are trying to do is to counteract the kind of natural reaction that a lot of voters have of saying, not in my backyard. They are trying to introduce into the conversation the idea that developers aren't always greedy and selfish and that we do need them to build more housing and that if you want to solve the housing crisis, you need to build your housing supply. Okay, there are three candidates breaking away from the pack in terms of fundraising and name recognition in the Denver mayor's race. So you've got Lisa Calderon, you've got Jamie Gillis, and Penfield Tate, How are they distinguishing themselves? Yeah, so you've hit there on the big question that I have for this election. And to some extent, they won't because this thing's likely to go to a runoff. At that point, whoever among them has done the best ground game will then get to face off against Hancock. Mm -hmm. 
So they're all kind of homing in on the message that they think will take them to the finish line. And it's kind of okay if that overlaps with the other challengers. Are there other issues in this election? Yes. So with Lisa in particular, you are seeing her frame most of the issues, including housing, development and growth from a social justice angle, talking about how Denver's development has only served the wealthiest people. So we're talking there about a class divide, about income inequality. Penfield, he's not anti-growth, as he points out, but he is a little concerned that the overall pace of development is unsustainable. He is somewhat skeptical of some of the urbanist ideas we see emerging about limiting automobile parking. And he's not so sure that we're going to hit this or can even handle this target of 900,000 residents in Denver by, I believe it's 2040. These are some of the projections. And what would you say just briefly about Jamie Gillis? Jamie is best known in this city as, she's not a developer, but she works in this space between developers, residents in the city to create organizations such as the Rhino Art District. She didn't create it, but she helped to run it for a number of years. And so her role has been almost as a consultant to help neighborhoods express what they want for the future. There are quite a few other people running uh, who may not be getting quite as much attention. I do think of Kaylin Heffernan, uh, lead singer of Wheelchair Sports Camp and a disability rights advocate. Uh, Who else might you highlight briefly before we go, Andrew? Well, we've also got a number of Gentlemen who have run a couple times before who I would categorize as citizen activists who are pretty consistent presences. Chairman Seku shows up at every single city hall meeting and takes – I think I've probably listened to him talk at this point for better than 20 hours because he will utilize his rights as a citizen to speak for three to six minutes on every single public hearing. Hmm. And there's also Marcus Giovanni and Ken Simpson who are perennial candidates and remain in the race today. Thanks for being with us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Andrew Kenny of the Denver Post on the Denver mayor's race. The election is May 7th. On Thursday, environmental activists will deliver petitions to the state capitol calling for lawmakers to crack down on plastic pollution, bags, utensils, cups. Just this week, lawmakers defeated a bill to restrict the use of plastic straws in restaurants. As the debate continues, there's increasing attention on microplastics. They've been called the invisible problem. Katie Christensen spearheads the Microplastics Initiative for the nonprofit Adventure Scientists. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ryan. How are you today? Doing well. You know, the West is known for rivers and lakes that draw people from all over, and you have found microplastics in them. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. We were maybe not that surprised to discover that microplastics were ubiquitous, not just in marine systems where they were originally known to exist, but even in the backcountry and in wilderness areas in Montana, in Colorado, throughout the West, really throughout the whole world. Well, I have a ton of questions about what (laughs) microplastics are. But first off, what got you looking into this type of pollution inland? You know, because I have so often associated this with oceans. Yeah, that's a great question. So we were really curious about where microplastics were entering the system. When we first started studying microplastics, it was through this global initiative back in 2013. And at that time, very little was known about microplastics, both the you know consequences of these polluting the environment, where they were coming from, the extent to which they're contaminating our um, ecosystems. So we were studying this 
issue as a marine issue, which is where most of the science had been at that point as well. Um, but we at Adventure Scientists were based in Bozeman, Montana. And the headwaters of the Gallatin watershed, which is our home watershed, it's our drinking water, takes its place in Yellowstone National Park. It flows through Forest Service lands, through wilderness areas, ultimately through Bozeman, Montana. And we were wondering, how is this river potentially contributing to what we had come to think of as a marine problem? And since we're really well-equipped at working with volunteers in the outdoor adventure community, and since Bozeman is full of those kinds of folks, we harnessed this group of people and deployed them into the backcountry in the Gallatin watershed and asked our volunteers to collect one-liter water samples that we then analyzed for microplastic pollution. Not surprisingly, you know, rivers flow to the ocean. Gallatin Watershed is the headwaters of what ultimately becomes the Mississippi River. So what we found in the Gallatin Watershed, we know then is making its way downstream ultimately and contributing to our counts in our marine systems. Yeah. What did you find in the Gallatin? Yeah. So we ended up over the two years of our study, we worked with 120 volunteers to collect 774 water samples. 57% of those samples that we collected were contaminated with microplastics. And just to put this in perspective, throughout our global study, we had 73% of our samples containing microplastics. That was much higher in our marine side of that um, data set. In our marine samples, we had 89% were contaminated with microplastics. So comparing that again back to our Gallatin study, this is a headwaters, freshwater ecosystem that runs through wilderness area, and yet still 57% of our samples contained microplastics. Okay, contained microplastics. We have to answer the question of what the heck microplastics are, of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we think of plastic pollution oftentimes as maybe a plastic bag or a straw or a plastic fork, um, you know, making its way down some river system or sitting in the environment or something that didn't make its way to the trash can or recycling bin. So with microplastics, it's the same general concept, except these are oftentimes invisible to the unaided eye. They're plastic particles that are less than five millimeters in size, and they oftentimes originate from some larger plastic object. So think of your polar fleece, this is like the classic example. Okay. It's this, um, you know, large, obviously visible object that is at least partially, if not fully synthetic in its composition. But that plastic fleece over time degrades, whether it's because you're wearing it out backpacking and you rub against a tree and some little pieces of what was this larger fleece come off or you launder it. And in the washing machine cycle, um, plastics are shed from that object and you end up with something that's less than five millimeters in size, oftentimes in the case of microfibers, it's even much smaller, like less than 1.5 millimeters in size. So definitely um, invisible to the unaided eye. And these are harder to capture. They're harder to put into a recycling bin because we don't exactly know that they, that they exist, where they yeah. are, how to do that. Okay, so you gave two examples there with the polar fleece. One is Mm -hmm. I'm out wearing it and I rub up against a tree and maybe a little of the microfiber goes into the environment. I think the second example was that you wash the polar fleece and it gets into the environment that way. So this isn't being, this stuff isn't being filtered out by water plants? 
Yeah, un- unfortunately, the the current technology in most wastewater treatment facilities is just not adequate huh. to capture all of the microplastics that make their way in there. So, even if they're capturing, let's say, fifty percent, which would be a pretty great number, in your typical laundering cycle, one piece of clothing that's synthetic can discharge hundreds of thousands of pieces of microplastics. So, fifty percent wow. is just not going to cut it. Gosh. I guess I feel like I I just can't win. Like I, if I care for the environment and I want to go out in it and explore it, I put on my polar fleece because it's cold and now I'm contributing to plastic pollution. Right. I I mean, put yourself in the mind of the listener who's just going, (laughs) living pollutes, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's me. I'm, I totally think about this when I go to bed at night. I'm not somehow, you know, distanced from the fact that I am contributing to this problem every time I do a load of laundry. But there are some steps that consumers can take to do something about it. And and granted, this is a much, much bigger issue than really only is possible for one person to tackle. But things just as being, you know, simple as being conscious of what you're consuming and and buying products that are built to last. Studies show that those products that are built to last, that are built more robustly, they don't shed as many microplastics in the washing cycle. Washing your clothes less often is actually a really significant way to reduce yours as an individual's con- contribution to microplastics pollution. But I hear what you're saying, and I, I struggle with that. I, I think there's an opportunity with microplastics unlike some other issues that are affecting us as a global community, because microplastics is not yet a polarizing environmental issue. There's just, you know, mountains of evidence showing the the ubiquity of this problem. And I think it's something that is, uh, it presents a lot of opportunities for people all over the world to get behind. And potentially manufacturers of these products, I gather. I mean, I think of microbeads, which got so much attention a few years ago, that are in cosmetic products, for instance. Right. There, there's been a real dent made in the microbeads, right? Right. So microbeads are considered primary microplastics. And those are those kinds of microplastics that were produced in the first place to be of the micro size. Yeah. So microbeads, right? When we talk about microfibers, which for what it's worth, over 80% of the microplastics that we found in our Gallatin study were microfibers. So they were fibrous in origin as opposed to microbeads, for example. Okay. Um, those are considered secondary microplastics. So those are originating from some larger object, like again, that polar fleece. And in that case, it, it, it really is so important that manufacturers of these products are taking seriously um, this issue. And and I have seen that, especially in the outdoor industry, particularly Patagonia, who was one of our funders. These are organizations who are putting their money where their mouth is. They're doing research, they're developing products, um, and they're really contending with contributing to this problem and how they can lessen that impact. Now, uh, Katie Christensen from the nonprofit Adventure Scientists, I I think we have to explore what the effect of microplastics are on the environment um, so that we're not sounding unnecessarily a panic alarm if one's not necessary. Do we we know what they do to, I don't know, fish or environmental health or something? 
Yeah. So that's a really important thing to put out there because what I will say to preface all of this is the research is still in its infancy. Microplastics is a new um you know, new field of environmental study because plastics is a relatively new product in these microplastics in particular. Um, So the way that they affect the environment, the way that they affect human health, there's a lot of conjecture. And yet there are some studies that show that microplastics can affect the feeding behavior of fish, can actually cause constrictions in the GI tract of organisms that intake them. So like plankton or small fish. Um, They can cause lacerations in the inside of the GI tract. And when you think about microplastics, we need to not just consider them as these physical objects, but that they actually are possible transports of chemical toxins in the environment. So a lot of these products, when they're produced, they're infused with dyes, with flame retardants, with other chemicals. And then as they move through the ecosystem, because of their properties, they can also attach themselves to persistent organic pollutants. So, you know, DDT being one example, but when an organism then ingests a a microplastic, it's not just causing this um, potential blockage in its esophagus, for example, but it's also now ingesting these chemical toxins. And then those can bioaccumulate through a food chain and um, humans that consume um, seafood or fish, but but also microplastics are in our drinking water. So you don't have to be an omnivore to still be ingesting microplastics. Well, I'll look forward to more science as it emerges. Katie, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Katie Christensen is project manager for the Microplastics Initiative at the nonprofit Adventure Scientists. We first spoke in September. Her goal find out how landlocked states like Colorado contribute to microplastic pollution. Should local police or sheriffs hold people for ICE, or is that overreach? Democrats in the state legislature are working on policies to limit that kind of cooperation in Colorado, and CPR's criminal justice reporter Allison Sherry examines the debate. Five years ago, Claudia Valdez-Sandoval's abusive husband attacked her, choking her in front of her kids. When police arrived, they arrested her because her husband had blood on his nose from where she'd scratched him. She says she'd been trying to fight back. Valdez Sandoval ended up settling with Arapahoe County for falsely holding her in jail as a domestic violence victim. But her case didn't end there. While she was in custody, law enforcement notified ICE that she was in the country illegally. Sandoval is now in deportation proceedings. Her lawyer, Hans Meyer, notes she wouldn't have come to ICE's attention if she hadn't called the police the night she was getting attacked. The system completely failed her, and that is why it's so important for us to pass this piece of legislation, because we need to put those bright lines into place so we can rebuild trust in community policing and local and state government. The extent to which local police currently work with ICE in Colorado depends on what county you're in. In Teller County, sheriff's deputies have signed up to be trained as immigration authorities. And some jails hold people for longer than their sentences so ICE can come pick them up. In contrast, Denver City Council has put restrictions on how much communication city employees can have with ICE. State Senator Julie Gonzalez, a Denver Democrat, says these county-by-county inconsistencies should be fixed by state law. Right now, we're living in a state where those lines are beginning to blur. Gonzalez is working with immigration advocates on a bill to set clear limits between local public officials and federal immigration authorities. 
She hopes institutions that get state money are restricted from giving immigration authorities information about the people they serve. This could include health clinics, universities, alcohol treatment classes, and hospitals. It also would ban sheriffs from holding people at ICE's request in county jails. Denise Mays at the American Civil Liberties Union says it's been a process to sell these ideas, both to lawmakers and to Governor Jared Polis. Some folks are a lot more excited about it than others. Some actually want to see devil in the details, and I get it. The governor may be the most interesting wild card in all of this. As a congressman, immigration reform advocates saw Polis as a kindred spirit pushing progressive reforms on Capitol Hill. In 2013, Polis took to the House floor to give an angry defense of immigrant families who'd come to the Capitol to push for comprehensive immigration reform. They are here because our government is tearing apart their families, Madam Speaker. Polis's congressional offices were known for helping constituents with visas and other immigration problems. But his sentiment has seemingly shifted. It started during his run for governor when he said he wouldn't sign any sanctuary bills, a position he repeated to CPR News earlier this month. I'm not in favor of any efforts that would uh, make Colorado a sanctuary state. I support local control of law enforcement, and that, you know, that cuts all ways. Um, Obviously, there's guardrails on that. Even though backers of this legislation say this isn't a sanctuary bill, which is an undefined term that means different things to different people, it still will likely set off the Trump administration. ICE field office director Jeffrey Lynch didn't want to weigh in on the bill's specifics, but notes several things it would ban are useful to his agency. Lynch currently enjoys broad cooperation among the state's law enforcement. He says detainers, when police hold people at ICE's request, are useful in far-flung areas to give agents time to get there. Lynch also says it's helpful to federal law enforcement to have local officers trained as immigration authorities. It's a force multiplier. It allows the the trained sheriff's deputies to kind of be our eyes and ears in the jail. Lynch says that overall, ICE's goal is to keep communities safe, and that's only helped by being able to work with local law enforcement. The people we go after are targeted. Everybody deserves to live in a community free of gang members, drug dealers, traffickers. But for Claudia Valdez-Sandoval, who tried to report her husband's domestic violence and now may be deported for that, the current situation leaves her afraid to deal with local police. Valdez says it's not okay for people to be afraid of police. Now it's up to the legislature and Governor Polis to decide what is that right balance between ICE's wish to work closely with local authorities and immigrant advocates' desire to keep a stern distance between the two. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. The debate over immigration, sanctuary cities, border security tends to end in extremes. But the story of Jose Antonio Vargas shows it's not always cut and dried. Vargas, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, came to the U.S. as a child. And for years, he had no idea he was here illegally. Then he found himself trapped, struggling to find a way to become a citizen. He's written a book called Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, CPR's Brad Turner was at the Aspen Ideas Festival, where Vargas shared his story. I've been in this country since I was 12, when I was sent here by my mom from the Philippines, living with my grandparents. So this is like the outline. Then found out I was undocumented when I was 16, when I went to the DMV. You know, this was like 1997 in California, like in the Prop 187 era, right? So I thought I was the only non-Mexican undocumented person. That's, that's what the media said, right? This is about Mexicans. It's not about Asian people. But since I was 16, I didn't, I didn't think I was allowed to feel 
just thought you just try to kind of pass and lie your way through the passing and then you hide. So actually the book, as you'll see, is those are the three kind of big outlines, right? Lying, passing, hiding. That's the experience of, I think, every undocumented person in this country. Even more, I think, undocumented black, undocumented white, undocumented Asian immigrants that are not a part of the conversation, right? I can count how many undocumented white people I meet at Starbucks who are just like, hey, I'm here without papers too, but I'm white, so I pass. And my accent is English or French or German, and people think it's a good accent versus a Spanish, Mandarin, Korean accent. Vargas still remembers that trip to the DMV vividly. He researched how to get a driver's license, then grabbed his green card and student ID. So I went to the DMV on my bike, listening to Alanis Morissette and Voice to Men on my Walkman. You know, I wasn't paying attention, really. So when the woman called me up on the booth, I gave her my green card, and then I gave her my Mountain View High School student ID. And she flipped it around twice, and she looked at me, and she was like, this is fake. The green card. My first instinct was she was lying. And my second instinct was, I'm not Mexican. I actually said, I'm not Mexican to her. I mean, that's how much I had internalized that this was a Mexican thing. That's what the newspaper said. That's what the radio said. That's what the news said, right? And then she was like, I don't care what you are. (laughs) This is fake. Don't come back here again. So then I rode my bike back home, and then my grandfather was a security guard, and so he always worked the night shift, so he was always home during the day. And so that's when I confronted him, and that's when all the lies kind of became clear that I was smuggled here, that he had paid somebody $4,500 to smuggle me, that the uncle that I thought was my uncle that brought me through the airport was actually a smuggler, Um, and that I thought my mom was going to follow. She's not going to follow because she can't. And then my grandfather said the plan was marry a woman and poof, you'd become an American. Like Sandra Bullock from The Proposal or something, right? But Vargas says that plan was never in the cards. He's gay, so he's not going to marry a woman for a green card. He wasn't sure how to navigate life after that revelation at the DMV. But some people stepped up to help. He says people who help undocumented immigrants make up a kind of 21st century underground railroad. He says high school teachers helped him find a way to attend college. That led to a string of jobs, which meant he had to lie to get work. He spelled out how he did it in his book. So my first job out of high school was at the San Francisco Chronicle as a copy boy, like delivering faxes and mail. And so that was the first time I ever like met an employment form. So on the form, it clearly states... There are boxes where you have to check U.S. citizen, resident alien. And I couldn't check resident alien because my green card is fake. So, so I had a conversation with myself, 20-minute conversation probably with myself on the third floor of the Chronicle building in San Francisco. Just like when I check the citizen box and it says perjury, what am I really signing up for? But I did, <laughs> which I was not legally supposed to do. And I kept doing it. So the Chronicle, the Philadelphia Daily News, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, the New York, like every single job that I had, 
a full-time job. I had to sign this form, and I had to have a conversation with myself about what does being a citizen mean. Vargas found himself with a job at the Washington Post not long after finishing college. He covered events at the White House and candidates like Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton and wondered how no one figured out he had a fake Social Security number. So I was so paranoid that I told this guy, Peter Pearl, who was one of the editors there, and I told him, I outed myself to him and told him fake papers, fake everything, the driver's license I wasn't supposed to have. And then to my surprise, he was like, um, <laughs> the first thing he said, you make so much more sense now. Because <laughs> I guess I'm like walking around like I had the whole world in my back. The second thing he said, which surprises me to this day, don't tell anybody else. <laughs> um, actually, the Washington Post, I don't know. To, to this day, I haven't asked Peter exactly what the punishment was. <laughs> But the Washington Post basically said in a statement that, you know, he should not have done what he did, that it was wrong. But then I think about, it again, like, how many other people do that every day, right? In any profession, right? They're like Peter Pearls all around this country making that split-second decision. And again, they're not a part of the conversation. Politics have failed them. Policies have failed them, right? Like, they're the ones making these split-second decisions about who gets to stay, who's welcome, Vargas left the Washington Post and has spoken openly about his status. He runs a nonprofit called Define American that tries to foster conversations around immigration. He has 15 employees there and says he gives them health benefits he can't collect himself as a non-citizen. And he knows he could be deported at any time. In fact, he's been arrested before. I, I was arrested. I wrote about this in the book. I got arrested four summers ago in Texas, the same place where the kids are being arrested now. So after I was um, detained for eight hours, they gave me um, my first American papers, which was actually a warrant. So it's called, it's called a notice to appear. So if they decide to call me into a judge, then they can make a decision whether or not to deport me. So the Trump administration did not do that. I cannot have any expectations at all about what I'm basically preparing for the worst, right? Because look, like, Part of the privilege of doing this work is I have to be really out there. So if he says, come get him, I'm packed. <laughs> right? Like, I haven't seen my mom for 25 years, so that will be a nice reunion to see her in the Philippines. Um, yeah. Vargas knows a lot of people don't think he should be allowed to stay in the U.S. He's covered Trump rallies where immigration is a talking point. But he says he contributes to our society. He pays taxes. And he thinks most Americans don't understand how murky, even non-existent, the path to citizenship can be. For me, though, one of the biggest struggles in this issue as a journalist who happens to be undocumented is how poorly most Americans understand what this issue is. Like, like the question about why don't you wait in the back of a line when the reality is there's actually no process. There's no line for someone like me to get in the back of. If you told me that I should wait 20 years to become a U.S. citizen? Okay. But I'm always amazed how people don't understand that there's no process for us to legalize our way. So my mom can't even get a tourist visa to come visit here because she doesn't own property and she's not a college graduate. So what does that tell you about race and class? So give us a process, give us a line. I'd be more than happy. I have to tell you, though, um, when people say to people like us that we should earn our citizenship, I don't know what else you need us to do. 
you're detaining us with our own tax dollars, by the way. You're detaining and deporting us with our own tax dollars. You call us a bunch of illegals like we're like insects off your backs. You couldn't survive without us, right? Your economies would collapse. The economy of Texas, just the contractor industry, the agricultural industry would collapse, right? And then you tell us that we should earn this. So very politely, I am just really curious how all of you have earned your American citizenship. What are you doing? Just curious. Because for me, becoming a citizen means knowing that the world doesn't revolve around me. So when I think of citizenship, I think of knowing that I only occupy one space and I'm surrounded by all of these people. And that kind of hyper-awareness to me is something that at a time like this to me is important. Meanwhile, Vargas says millions of undocumented immigrants around the U.S. live in uncertainty. He says they're often unable to visit their families in person. He hasn't seen his mother in 25 years, except on Skype. And he says the mental and emotional effects of U.S. immigration policy need to be a part of the political conversation. If you want to like, give yourself a jolt sometimes, there are people who literally Skype their relatives' funerals. An immigrant have parents dying somewhere and they're Skyping the whole funeral. That's what immigration is. Right? And I think, again, we don't talk about it from this experiential way. And I think if we're really going to solve this issue beyond what immigration reform is, I'm an undocumented, I couldn't really tell you what immigration reform is. Right? But if we're going to solve it, I think understanding what the human toll of this, I think for me, has to be at the forefront of that. Jose Antonio Vargas spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival about his book, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. CPR's Brad Turner produced this story. You can find more from the Aspen Ideas Festival and video of the complete talk at CPR.org. This week, a 14-year-old girl from Denver visits the White House, not as a tourist. She's going as an inventor and as an advocate for people with Lyme disease. Olivia Goudreau created the Tick Trapper app. It aims to help stop the spread of tick-borne illnesses like Lyme disease, which Goudreau was diagnosed with after a lot of frustration. She spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis shortly after creating the Tick Tracker. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. You were seven years old when you started feeling just terrible. What were your symptoms? Oh, um, my symptoms were I started getting really dizzy. Um, Then I started losing my vision. And since I was in second grade, I had never talked about this with anyone. So I kept on saying, the curtains are coming up, the curtains are coming up. And then it What do you mean that the curtains were coming up? So basically, when I lost my vision, we called them blackouts. I could hear and I could feel things, but I could not see. And I knew that my eyes were open. They just weren't working. Mm. Um, And the darkness would start rising up. It wouldn't, like, fade in. It would just start rising. So that's what a curtains coming up means. And you had body aches? Yes, I had body aches. I My limbs felt like wood, and I could not get out of bed. I had a tremor in my right hand, and I could not hold up my head at all, so they were letting me lie down to do my math homework. And I felt like I had the flu almost every day. Mm. 
What did doctors think was wrong? You went to something like 50 doctors, I think. Yes. Um, doctors at first, they were doing all these tests that I did not need. I had a liver biopsy, a spinal tap, EKGs, upper and lower endoscopy. I had my adenoids removed since I thought that that was a whole separate problem. And I had over 100 blood draws all in one week. And, um, so they were saying, oh, yeah, maybe you're just very dehydrated because of the high altitude. Um, so a lot of them said that first, and about maybe the 27th doctor, he gave my mom a pamphlet, and on the pamphlet it read, your child or your loved one has Wilson's disease, and Wilson's disease is this awful disease. It's an inherited disorder um, that um, basically causes copper to accumulate in your organs. Yes, and you do not live past the age of 40. Mm. So my mom was being handed a pamphlet saying, just love up your daughter for the time she has, and I was in second grade, and that was probably the scariest thing that I remember hearing, saying that I was going to die. Um, and then the DNA test came back saying that I did not have Wilson's disease. They started asking me, oh, do you feel left out at school? Do you feel left out at home? And they said, maybe you're just making it up to gain attention. And in my mind, I was thinking, man, what kid would make up all of these things to get all of these horrible tests done just to get attention? Right, right. I think you have enough tension with the flu. So it it wasn't Wilson's disease. It was Lyme disease. Yes. And tell me when you first figured out that was it. We think that I got bitten by the tick that produces Lyme disease in the summer in between my first and second grade year when I was seven, I mean six. And so 18 months had passed from that time, and the 51st doctor finally diagnosed me with Lyme disease, but it wasn't her profession. So she said, oh, yes, you should just go on 30 days of doxycycline, and then you're done, and then you're cured. So my parents and my family and I, we celebrated, and by day five, I was back to normal. But then by day 35, I started getting my symptoms again. And so did you go on more medication? So my mom knew that she had to find a Lyme disease doctor. So we bounced around to a couple different doctors. Um, it felt like with one of these doctors, it felt like he was just putting numbing medicine on all the time. And I mean, I was able to go to school and feel normal well, kind of, um, but I wasn't really getting back to my full health. And it, we knew that this wasn't going to help me overcome Lyme disease at any point. So we had to go to a different Lyme disease doctor, and mm. that is where we met Dr. Richard Horowitz from Hyde Park, New York. Who finally helped you. Yes, he is my savior. He also diagnosed me with a couple other co-infections, that one of them called POT syndrome, it's where I would start passing out again, and it's where my blood pressure would get really low. Um, he made, had me go on 86 pills a day. Wow. Um, so I still do that now, and I am on the Dapzone regimen, and I'm the youngest person with the lightest body weight to be on this. 
Wow. Many people with Lyme disease have what's called a bullseye rash where the tick bite was. Had you had anything like that? I did not have a bullseye rash. I didn't even remember being bitten by a tick. Only 50% of people bitten by ticks get bullseye rashes or any other rash. The experience led you and your mom to start a foundation to raise money for research into the condition. You've also helped design something called the Tick Tracker. And explain what that is. Last summer, we were in Missouri again, um, since that's where our lake house is. And we had found 200 poppy seed ticks on our dog. And they were all embedded in his skin. So as we're all trying to rushing and getting all the ticks out, I asked my mom, is there an app to where we can see what other ticks are around us? And we did the research, and there wasn't any app like that. So I immediately started to create one. And it helps people track and report ticks in real time using geolocation. And then other users can see what they've done. So let's say that you found a tick on your dog in the woods, let's say, Vale. Maybe someone from... Idaho, they could see where you found that, and they would be alerted if they were in that same spot. So then the app would say, oh, you're in a tick-infested area. Be careful. Olivia, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Olivia Goudreau speaking with my colleague Andrea Dukakis back in March. On Thursday, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services will present Goudreau with an award for creating the Tick Tracker app. In southwestern Colorado near Durango, they've been digging out from several feet of snow, and that's good news for a region that saw tinder dry conditions and wildfires over the summer. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood found farmers in the area are hopeful but guarded about what's next. What a difference a year makes. In 2018, dryness helped fuel the 416 wildfire that destroyed homes and slowed down tourism. Farmers and ranchers sold cattle and lost crops to drought. Brian Wilson farms in Montezuma County and draws water from McPhee Reservoir, the largest in the region. As water levels dropped last summer, his hay production fell. Normally we get four ton, you know, we were about three ton last year. Production was down, but again, the price was better, so the bottom line was about the same. Other farmers who rely on water that falls from the sky had it worse. Their crops died. Wilson hasn't submitted seed and fertilizer orders yet for spring planting. Right now, he's feeling optimistic, but he won't have a full picture of what water he can use until well after he's planted his fields. And recent snow doesn't mean there's tons of water available right away. McPhee Reservoir is just 7% full right now. The check is in the mail, but we haven't put it in the bank account yet. Becky Bollinger is assistant state climatologist for Colorado. Water storage concerns her. Soils beneath the snow are still bone dry from drought. That means spring runoff will first seep into the soil, not into reservoirs, and that feeds cities and farms. Still, the extra moisture in the soil will mean better grazing for rancher Matt Isgar's cattle. He has a different problem as he looks to recover from last year's disappointing season. He says a more productive 2019 will mean he'll need more workers. You know, it's kind of hard after you have a drought year and you typically don't have all the same help you had because they didn't work as much on a drought year. So now you have to get geared back up, try to get 
helped back on track. But it's still the most promising agricultural season in recent years for farmers and ranchers outside Durango. In town, Assistant City Manager Amber Blake says the city's nearly run through the $47,000 budgeted for snow removal this year. There's a few pennies left in that budget line item. Blake says the city will have to ask the Durango Council to approve more money. We'll do what we can to get the snow hauled away, but it's winter. And as my kids said, Mom, you know, everybody just needs to learn how to love the snow. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News.